right, good morning, church. You have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, and Nate and Allie, we are super, super excited to have you here. Nate, it's good to have you on staff, and uh, just welcome to the family of Metaview, because uh, it is definitely a family around here, and uh, we are excited to see um, how God plugs you in and, and uses you and his ministry to glorify him, and how the discipling of students to, to reach the nations will, uh, will come out of the the fruit of that of that labor, and so we are just so thankful for you, and how God has connected the dots. Uh, you know, from Indonesia to Georgetown. I mean, He can do that, and that's an amazing thing. So, uh, we are thankful. Ephesians chapter two. As we continue through our series in the book and the letter of Ephesians, we have looked at what it means to be in Christ, and so this is a reoccurring theme throughout Paul's letter of being in Christ. So we had a redemption in Christ. Last week, his prayer was growing in Christ, praying for the Ephesian church to grow in Christ. And today, we're going to look at alive in Christ, and uh, we will jump into some of the best verses in all of Scripture that point us to a clear and precise description of the gospel. And so, as we, uh, as we are turning there and looking at what it means to be alive in Christ, I'll give you a moment. Uh, if you were uh, uh, able to grow up in a generation like I was, then you were a, a child of the 80s. And the child, a child of the 80s was given many great and wonderful gifts, like acid-washed jeans, uh, leg warmers, um, a Walkman, actual music television, chicken McNuggets, which my grandfather and I argued over whether it was white meat or not. And now I'm just asking if it's meat. <laughs> and uh, you were given things like the Nintendo, and some of the best movies that were ever created, like The Goonies, Back to the Future, and the most wonderful classic love story, The Princess Bride. See, I knew. Mowage, yes. So The Princess Bride, as many of you know, obviously, had a hero by the name of Wesley, and Wesley at some point uh, dies in the middle of it, and they take him to Miracle Max, who is played by Bill Crystal. And Miracle Max is having this, this idea, well, let's just ask him what he has to live for. And, and uh, my name is Amigo Montoya, says he can't talk. He is dead. And he says, oh, look who knows so much. He just so happens that your friend is mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. What's that? Go through their clothes and look for loose change. And so as we get into this, Paul is going to say, you were dead. He's not going to say mostly dead. He's not going to say that you were a little bit alive. He's going to say your spiritual state before Christ was dead. And this is the truth of the gospel. Then Ephesians 2.1 starts with, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. We'll look at that a little bit at length here in a minute, but as John MacArthur says, now this describes the condition of every individual, you are dead. Now listen to me, if you are a Christian, this is your past. If you are not a Christian, this is your present. This is where you are right now, you're dead. You see, man's trouble is not that he's out of harmony with the environment. Man's trouble is not that he can't make meaningful relationships. Man's trouble is that he's dead. Harry Ironside says, what a past. We were utterly beyond any ability to save ourselves, for a dead man can do nothing to improve his condition. And every unsaved person is dead, dead toward God, dead spiritually. If you are out of Christ, you have never had one heartbeat toward God. You are dead in trespasses and sins. Sin 
has not only made man guilty so that he needs forgiveness, but sin has sunk the human race into a state of spiritual death so that men need to, they need divine life. That is why we must be born again. Being born again is receiving new life from God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, there, of course, there are moral degrees of sinfulness. We would not for a moment say everybody is just as corrupt or just as vile or just as wicked or just as despicable as everybody else. That would not be true. And yet, if people are dead, they're dead. This is the state of every person before Christ. So I ask you today, before we jump in and read scripture, are you born again? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into your life and that you are in Christ? This means that you are no longer dead, but God has made you alive in Jesus Christ. And so these are the most wonderful verses in some of all of scripture that we get to see who we were and then who we are in Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll read. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for what has been accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ, that when we were dead and we were hopeless and we were helpless, you made us alive in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of grace and the gift of mercy. We thank you for the love and the forgiveness that is offered to us through your son. And we pray that as people who are alive, people who live not in darkness, but who live in light, that you would allow us to be fruitful in our abiding of you so that our lives will be transformed by the goodness of the gospel. Father, today, if there's someone here or someone listening who does not yet have the assurance of their salvation, I pray, Lord, that you'd bring them to their knees, that they would humble themselves in repentance, and they would confess you as Lord of their life. In Christ's name, amen. Let's read. We're going to Read uh, verses 1 through 7 today of chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. First thing I want you to see is the before. We're going to have two points today, the before and the after, right? The before, before our condition, before we were in Christ. What were we like? Well, Paul here begins by addressing the spiritual state of humanity based on the ever-present reality of sin. This is where we begin. Who, were, who we were before Christ? Well, we were plagued with sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. So what is sin? Sin is a hard thing to define. We hear people define it in all kinds of ways. Well, sin is idolatry and sin is missing the mark. It's falling short. It's rebellion. It's godlessness. It's lawlessness. Well, I like how the Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology kind of sums it up. It says sin is a riddle. It's a mystery, a reality that eludes definition and comprehension. 
Perhaps we most often think of sin as wrongdoing or transgressions of God's law. Sin includes a failure to do what is right. Throughout the Bible, almost every sin reaches for things with which have intrinsic value, such as security, knowledge, peace, pleasure, or a good name. But behind the appeal to something good, sin ultimately involves a raw confrontation between obedience and rebellion. Well, then what is the essence of sin? The essence of sin is not a substance, but a relationship of opposition. Sin is a state of being where we are in a relationship of opposition towards God. This is where we find ourselves. Sin opposes God's law and his created beings. Sin hates rather than loves. It doubts or contradicts rather than trusts and affirms. It harms and abuses rather than helps and respects. Sin is elusive. Sin has no substance, no independent existence. It does not even exist in the sense that love or justice do. It exists only as a parasite of the good or good things. Sin creates nothing. It abuses, perverts, spoils, and destroys the good things God has made. Negative as it is, it hides itself under the appearance of what is good. Oh, so when we talk about being in sin, it is this parasite that has latched itself to a very good thing. We were created in the image of God. We were created very good. We were created with a purpose to glorify God with everything that was about us. But then sin destroyed that image. It caused man to be dead spiritually, and it caused him to be filled with all kinds of things that are in a relationship of opposition towards God. That's the state of all of humanity. Because of one man's sin, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. As we read the account in Genesis chapter 3, we, we might know it pretty, pretty closely, but we see that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall we touch it, lest we die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, what exactly happened at that moment? Spiritual death. Satan had twisted the words in such a way to make it sound like it was just a physical thing rather than a spiritual thing. And at that moment... Under the headship of Adam, all of humanity was thrust into this sinful, relational opposition towards God. This is how we were born. It's our natural state. The natural state of all human beings is spiritual death. We were dead. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a gift for those who are dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Let's read it one more time. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. These verses are rich. There's a lot happening here in, in explaining what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. 
this last week I started a brand new discipleship book. And so the discipleship book is designed for me to work through it personally where I have different questions based on different scriptures where then I write out my answers. And so I've decided to work on this book on my own separate from from my, my study time that I, that I spend throughout the week. And so I opened it up, brand new study book, first chapter, these are the first verses. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's convenient since that's what I need to study this week. And so the first question was, write your own definition of sin based on these verses. So I'm going to share it with you. This is what I wrote down in my discipleship book. Sin is a state of being where one is dead spiritually. Blindly following a world system that seeks to replace the glory of God with self-exaltation. This is due to being under the control of Satan, the enemy of God, who works out disobedient rebellion against the Lord through human actions, thoughts, and motives. All of which selfishly seek to pursue fleshly desires and inclinations of one's own carnal appetites, resulting in one state of being, by nature, under the wrath of God. I know it's lengthy. But there is so much more to sin than just simply missing the mark. There is what we're born with, this inclination, this state of being where we are in relational opposition to the glory of God for self-exaltation. Don't you feel it? Don't you feel it just waging war within you? So what does this mean? What are the conditions of not being in Christ? Well, A, we're dead. Again, we're dead in trespasses and sins. Sins and trespasses. Sin, this missing the mark by not being able to live for the glory of God because of an innate opposition toward God that elevates self, then leads towards trespasses, which means the violation of a definite law. So since there's this part of me that has this innate uh, desire to be in opposition to God, when I see God's law that says no trespassing, what do I do? I trespass. Because I am... I am geared towards rebellion, I'm geared towards disobedience, and I'm geared towards, even though I know that I will be guilty of trespassing when there's a no trespassing sign, I blow right through the sign because God has said, hey, no trespassing, and I say, you know what, but I'm in opposition to what you say because that's my nature. And so I'm going to go right through that, and I'm going to do what I want, facing the consequences. We're dead. This is our state. The word comes from a Greek word that means corpse. How much clearer can you put it? If you are not in Christ, you are a spiritual corpse. There is no life in you. Paul's declaration that we are dead means that we are incapable of meeting the purpose for which God created us. We're incapable. There is something about us that is against the glory of God. B, we were following the course of this world. The course of this world, we're blindly following a world system that seeks to replace the glory of God with self-exaltation. The course of the world refers to the ethical and moral system of the world. This is becoming easier and easier to, to see. Following the system of practices and standards associated with secular society, which are continually moving more and more away from the fear of the Lord to accommodate the desires of man. Have you noticed that there's a world system that is more and more moving away from the fear of the Lord to satisfy the desires of man? This is the world system that we're living in. Even John Stott said people tend to not have a mind of their own but surrender to the pop culture of television and glossy magazines or I would add in TikToks these days. It is cultural bondage 
We are all the same until Jesus liberated us. We drifted along a stream of this world's ideas of living. So there is this pattern and practice of someone who is alienated from God and opposed to God in their dead and sinful state, who have been influenced by the culture and society in such a way that their attitude, their preferences, their thoughts, their motives, and their opinions are a result of the world's influence and propaganda forming their belief system. Whoa. So not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins because of an innate nature that is within us, now we have a world system that is selling us something that is a lie and we're following right along with the, with the rest of the world in that pattern. As Richard Trent said, I've shared this with you before, it is a floating mass. The world system is a floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations, and any time current in the world, which it may be impossible to seize or accurately define but which constitutes a most real and effective power, being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment our lives inhale to again inevitably exhale. This is why John in 1 John 2 would tell us in 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, we're listening to a world system that is constantly you know, leading us to think in a certain way. And not only that, but we were following the prince of air. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is due to us being under the control of Satan, the enemy of God, who works out disobedient rebellion against the Lord through human actions, thoughts, and motives. Paul here clearly defines that there is an enemy that is opposed to the word of God. It's Satan, the devil. He has his own kingdom and dominion of darkness. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Those who are not in Christ are still under the kingdom reign of this world. It's a kingdom of darkness. Jesus himself in John 8.44 would refer to the devil. When he was talking to the religious elite, he says, You uh, are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The power of the air. Everyone accepts the fact that there are unseen waves that are happening, like microwaves and, and x-rays and all those things are taking place. And you, you can't really see it take place, but you see the results of it. Well, the same thing happens with the demonic power. You may not always see the demonic oppression, demonic rule that's going on in the lives of people, but you see its effects. You see that not only are they stuck in their trespasses and sins, they're dead in those. Not only are they following a pattern of this world, but there, is, there seems to be a dominion of darkness that has, that has come into their life that is holding them captive under its, its authority. It's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan has a spirit of opposition to the word of God. That spirit of opposition is working itself out in the lives of unbelievers primarily through the denial of the truth of God, 
or the pretending to be the truth of God by rewriting the word of God to accommodate the desires of the flesh. This is how it's working its way out. The spirit of disobedience that's now at play in the sons of disobedience is trying to either deny the word of God or rewrite the word of God so that we can, we can further pursue our desires of the flesh. This is the world in which we live in. Even now that those of us who are in Christ, we see that we must wage a war against the spirit of the enemy that seeks to de- deceive us into believing a counterfeit gospel, a counterfeit truth that would only seek to allow us to appease our carnal nature. As we'll see later on in Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We were dead. We were following the patterns of this world. We were under the dominion of the evil one. And the spirit of disobedience was being lived out. And not only that, we were living in the passions of the flesh and carrying out the desires of the body. Not only is there a real enemy, but our own sinful nature is working against the obedience and the relationship and submission to Christ. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. All of which selfishly seek to pursue fleshly desires and inclinations of one's carnal appetites, passions, and desires. Our culture is confused on what is right and wrong. Have you noticed? It's because our culture has decided to determine what the moral compass is based off of its passions and its desires, which are always changing. We say things like, if it feels good, do it. We say things like, if If you feel a certain way, you should act on it. In fact, the world system is teaching our children to determine their own gender based off passions and desires rather than nature and science. One of the most disturbing movements in today's culture is to destroy innocence and children by enforcing an agenda that validates the insecure, sinful, and mentally ill adults who are following their sinful passions and desires of the flesh. And the church has to draw a line on what sin really is. As Ligon Duncan put it, one of the things that is so striking about Paul, what he says here, is that we live in a generation that tells us if you desire to do it, it could not possibly be wrong. And the Apostle Paul is saying, my friend, that is an evidence that you are spiritually dead when you think that way. When you think that if you desire it, it must be good, it must be something that adds to your life, and therefore no one can tell you that you can't do it, do what you desire, you are simply giving irrefutable proof to the truth that you are spiritually dead. Because these desires, though they may be alive and burning within us, these desires which are according to the flesh are not desires that are begotten to life. They are begotten to death, and they lead to death. And the Apostle Paul says, there's your proof. And this generation around you says, we will do what we want to do. And it is wrong for anyone to tell us that we can't do what we want to do. They're simply proving the Apostle Paul's point. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world. We were under the dominion of the evil one who's working out his disobedience in our lives. And not only that, our flesh is causing us to be so confused about what truth is based on passions and desires that we are, by nature, children of wrath. We were, by nature, 
a child of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, this means from birth, totally depraved. What does total depravity mean? It means that there's no human faculty left untouched by sin. What does that mean? Well, it means that everything you are, everything you think, say, feel, do, desire, dream, consume, is touched by sin. Every relationship you have, every interaction you have with someone else, your neighbor or coworker, every effort you have in living is touched by sin. You can't escape it. Many churches today are shying away from the topic of sin. They're more focused on teaching moral conformity and behavior modifications. They're teaching you a 12-step process to be a better Christian. But the Bible is clearly showing us that we have a problem, and it's not just our behavior, it's our nature. There was an old Bible-believing pastor who visited a church like this and recognized real quick that they were not teaching about sin. And the Bible-believing pastor stood up and announced that he was one of them old-fashioned individuals who still looked upon the human as being a sinner in need of salvation and grace. He turned to the class and he asked, how many of you had to teach your children to be bad? Not one of them raised their hand. How many of you had to instruct your children to be good? Every single one of them raised their hand. I've proven my point, he said. If children were basically good, they would become evil only if you had trained them in wrongdoing. It is because they are sinners that they must first put so much emphasis on their need of Christ, knowing that they are sinners. We should diligently seek to discipline, disciple, and show our kids the necessity they have in Jesus Christ. Children of wrath. This word wrath is derived from the word that means swelling until it burst. It's kind of a gross thought, actually, now that I say it out loud. But it's this idea that God's wrath is swelling. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if the wrath of God has not been poured out on Jesus Christ in your place, then you are still a recipient of that wrath. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We see now that even the wrath of God is being revealed in how the world is suppressing the truth and chasing after their evil desires. Children of wrath. Think about the children in our church for just a moment. Think about the next generation. It's weird that I'm now of the generation where I say, back when I was your age, but it happens. Think for a moment about this world and how it is progressing further and further away from God and what the world will be like in five years, ten years, fifteen years, even twenty years from now. What will it look like? We need to be a church that is so family-focused that we are going to put our effort into discipling young children to know who Jesus Christ is and to understand what sin is at a young age so that they will fall on their knees and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We need to fervently seek Christ because through him and only through him is their salvation. 
but God. Our condition in Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgresses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Though we were like this that I've just described, but God. This is good news. Hey, we are loved by God and recipients of his rich mercy and his grace. As G. Campbell Morgan says, mercy is compassion, and in God, that is more than passive. It's active. It is pity working on behalf of those who are helpless. It is love doing the things that love desires to be done. God is working for our salvation. He is rich. He is full, and he has a wealth of abundance of mercy. It is his character that it comes from. In Christ, I want you to understand this, God does not hate you but is rich in mercy towards you. How many of us, when we sin, feel like God is so, so mad at us? We put condemnation on ourselves and we, we, we pour that on ourselves, but he is rich in mercy. He is full of mercy. It is his character to pour out and lavish that love upon you in Christ. In Christ, you have been, you have been raised You've been sealed. You've been seated with him in the heavenly places. This mercy, this word is translated the steadfast and unfailing love of God. It keeps on coming. John 3, 16 through 17. We all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. This is love. This is the unending, unconditional love of God that is richly bestowed on those who are in Christ. He loves us. He made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us Alive together with Christ. As Stephen Cole would said, we were dead, but God. He made us alive. We need to understand that salvation is not a matter of a spiritually sick sinner deciding to take the medicine. If it were, we could perhaps talk him into making that decision. It's not a matter of a drowning man grabbing the life ring. He would, who wouldn't grab it? If he knew the desperate condition... Rather, the sinner is a corpse floating face down in the water. He's dead. God must raise him from the dead. But the good news is God can raise the dead. He can impart new life to dead sinners. If he can't, then why pray for the conversion of anyone? Is God in heaven saying, yes, I'll, I wish I could save him, but he just won't take the life ring? No, God made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I reference Ezekiel. I know we're short on time, but Ezekiel 37, 1 through 5 is the valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can you see these bones? Can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord, God, you know. 
Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I want you to notice that God is rich in mercy and love and he can bring life out of death. The resurrection is proof of this. And that our unity with him is that we were once dead with him and now we are risen to newness of life. This means that even in the salvation, notice that he says, prophesy the word of God to these bones. There is an there action on, the beha- on behalf of the church to preach the good news, and by the hearing of the good news, people are brought from death to life. What a wonderful commission we've all been given. We are saved by grace. By grace you have been saved. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting everything for nothing. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. We do not deserve anything. We don't earn it. We can't deserve it. We're saved by grace. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We must remember that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that we have salvation. As, as one person said, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know the turtle didn't get there by itself. If you ever see someone who's saved from death to life, they didn't get there on their own. It's by the grace of God. We were raised up and seated with Christ It says in verse 6, And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the mystery of the union that we have in Christ, that our dead man and all of his sin nature and total depravity was nailed to the cross spiritually while Christ hung there physically. There was this great exchange of our unrighteousness being nailed to the cross. Every sin of our past, present, and future was laid on him. And when Christ physically died... Our old man died with him and now is raised to newness of life with Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful mystery. It says, and John Brown says, Christ rose again, but our sins did not. They are buried forever in the grave. This is good news. This is why Paul would say in Romans 6, 1 through 11, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has died to set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The beautiful union. This is the picture of baptism. This is why a believer's baptism is so important. It is a first act of obedience. It is the 
physical picture of what is spiritually happening, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You've been fully united with Christ. You're buried with him and risen to newness of life. It is no longer your life that you live, but you are completely changed. What a beautiful picture is a testimony of what Christ has done in your heart. And if you haven't been baptized, please come talk to me today. I'd love to tell you about the beautiful picture of the resurrection and the life of a believer. E, we are recipients of the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We cannot imagine how deep the Father's love is for us in Christ. We can't fathom the riches of his mercy or the depths of his grace toward us in Christ. Salvation is only the beginning. All of eternity will unfold the richness of God for those who are in Christ. All of eternity will unfold the richness of God for those who are in Christ. What a beautiful thought. I'm going to end with this this quote by F.B. Meyer. The word exceeding or immeasurable might be rendered beyond throwing distance, Filling, flinging your thoughts forward as far as you can. There will always be an immense beyond. Throwing them as high as you may till they soar to the stars and there will always be an above. Let them sink forever and there will always be a beneath in exceeding riches of God's grace. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. But the glory of the position and character of the saints, contrasted with the denigration from which they were raised, will be accounted in coming ages as more extraordinary exemplification of the riches of divine grace than the splendor of the heavens is of the wealth of his skill. We may see the stars, we may see the creation, we may marvel at how beautiful it is, but it will not compare to the richness that he has in store for those who are in Christ Jesus.